It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. I've been slammed with work writing about the Michael Sussman trial. That's the Russia collusion trial in which it is very obvious that there was a collusion of one sort to go after President Trump before he was president and during his tenure as president. And I'll get to that in just a moment. And I have a very interesting interview with a federal prisoner, a guy sitting in a D.C. jail prison who's facing many years in federal prison for his activities on January 6, 2021. So don't miss that. It's coming up in just a few minutes. But I ended up having some janky sound with this particular interview because I, I have no idea what happened. Something came undone and what have you. And then I could not re-record it. So it was like, oh, sound, that's not so great. But whatever, it, it you'll hear it. You'll hear what he says. You'll hear my questions. And it's pretty insightful, I would say. So stick around and listen to that. But, you know, I had a chat with a loved one about a week ago who said, you know, I know you and I know where you're coming from and I know a little bit of your story. But I don't think any other people may understand your story or understand why you believe as you believe. And I thought, oh, that's interesting how you were a person of the left, of center. And then you moved to the right. Why did you move to the right? Why didn't you tell people on your podcast, on the Adult in the Room podcast, why you believe as you do? People might seem to think that I say inflammatory things just to be inflammatory or to suggest things that that I don't, at that moment in time, support with evidence because... For me, I already know that I'm moving on to other things. And but I you don't you may not know that. You may not fully appreciate how I've come to arrive at certain conclusions on the political scene. And so I'm fixing to tell you. So if you've heard my story before, if you know this story, by all means fast forward to this interview that I have with Jake Lang uh, from prison on the January sixth situation, the riot protest. And uh, he may go away for a very, very long time. So go ahead and fast forward to that. For the rest, let me just take a few minutes to explain why I can say what may seem to you to be sometimes sort of wild or inflammatory statements without telling you why I'm telling you this or why I believe as I do that what I'm telling you is true. I mean, you can't always stop and say, well, and my source for that, it's not like we do footnotes here. We do show notes. So maybe that will help, but a lot of people don't go look at those necessarily. So anyway, for the rest, let me take a couple of minutes to tell you why I believe as I believe. You know, I understand when people make crazy statements or what they think, think sound crazy that they don't understand and they just want to just turn it tune out maybe and in fact i still kind of get that way with some people i hear from people every single day who make wild sounding claims which i won't get into although maybe one day soon i will get a list up of all the stuff that comes over the transom on any given day and a transom for those who don't know is an over-the-door window that used to be used for delivery window or uh, the reason people would throw things through the transom window was so you couldn't see who was doing it. So it was on the QT. It was a little secret. So it might be cool to go through what people tell me so I could tell you why they believe what they believe. So before you go thinking it's some crazy conspiracy theory, you go, no, you know what? You might want to listen. So let me set you straight. When I say on the radio or this podcast, if something is, quote, utter nonsense, it's my way of saying it's utter bullshit. It's BS. So let me put that out right out there right now. I'm not planning to use it or anything or go, you know, directly to potty talk, but you need to know that. One time somebody told me that you kind of had to be in a club to understand what I was talking about because I have a bedrock of understanding of why I believe what I believe and use that as my filter through which I tell you about these political stories and social stories and and other kinds of things. And uh, so I'll make more of an effort to explain why I say what I do 
support even more of the claims. And maybe you'll understand where I'm coming from, as the hippies used to say, after they were done smoking dope, as they used to call it, in Laurelhurst Park near my house. And right now where I am, beautiful day, gorgeous, gorgeous evening skies, sort of balmy temperatures for this part of the world, probably 63 degrees I read here on my phone, which is pretty good around here. And I got birds fluttering around and the, I've got them right outside the Adult in the Room podcast studio. <laughs> uh, the sun still has an hour more before it goes down. I've had a glass of wine. I feel a bit more expansive. So instead of assuming you agree with me when you listen, allow me to give you a truncated version of why I believe what I believe politically, how I left the left. I was a radio news anchor and being left of center came with the territory. It was October 1991, which is, of course, why they call me the adult in the room. Clarence Thomas had just been nominated to become a Supreme Court justice. Justice Thurgood Marshall had announced that he was retiring from the court. Marshall was a demigod in the civil rights circles, which you probably know. The estimable advocate argued that in the Brown versus Board of Education 1954 case that went before the U.S. Supreme Court. It was there that his meteoric rise or his legal career ended or started um, on the Supreme Court, elevated shortly thereafter. And it was a landmark decision which overturned the so-called settled law, stare decisis anyone, Plessy versus Ferguson, the sickening, separate but equal case that teed up Jim Crow. Separate water fountains. I actually have a a sign that says colored water fountains and white water fountains. It's just amazing. I had to take it down when um, I had it up on my political wall. You know, one of those, hey, don't forget, this actually happened in the United States of America. And one of my babysitters who's a person of color thought I meant it. And it was like something I agreed with. And I thought, oh, yeah, yeah. Also, I just took it down. It's in a box, probably in a storage unit or something. So... That was no bueno, and uh, but I nevertheless took to heart her feelings about that. And I thought, oh, okay. In order to get through the nomination process, of course, uh, Clarence Thomas, who'd been named to fill the spot, had to go through the Judiciary Committee. So the Clarence Thomas hearings were over. Here was an accomplished black man nominated by George H.W. Bush to replace another storied black man. But what I didn't know was that the left of center folks, the Democrats on that committee and in positions of power, had way other ideas. And it was a time when the scales fell from my eyes and I realized, hang on, they're not here to support that black man. Oh, did I mention I was young and naive? I mean, it was obvious that they were attempting to destroy the good guy. And of course, I'd seen the same thing uh, with a white man uh, in, what is it, 87 with Robert Bork, an estimable colleague on uh, legal savant who was nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they Borked him. And so that's another story. Maybe we can tell it sometime, but... So it had happened before, but you didn't expect it to happen to a black man. Not by the Democrats, right? Oh, that didn't happen. Now, of course, we know better. But anyway, I was watching the hearings. I was watching every day in the newsroom between news uh, copywriting and doing the anchoring and all that stuff. Now, word came because we had an AP teletype in our newsroom. And word came that a woman had accused Clarence Thomas of sexual harassment. This is before Me Too, obviously. So this was kryptonite, like Me Too eventually became kryptonite. Uh, See Johnny Depp. So she was to remain anonymous, we were told. But Senator Howard Metzenbaum doxter, outed her. And the identity was Anita Hill, a person who had worked with Clarence Thomas for years, had followed him from job to job. In fact, they were at the EEOC, ironically. 
And he was leading the agency. So Judiciary Chair Joe Biden, yeah, him, and there was Ted Kennedy and uh, Howard Metzenbaum and all of those guys doxed Anita Hill when she wanted to remain anonymous. So he reopened the hearing to accommodate the claim of a woman who had no proof but just allegations against a man they didn't want on the Supreme Court because he was a conservative person, right of center. She claimed that he had left a pubic hair on a Coke can for her to find in the office. I don't know, but it seems to me that there's kinky hair on the head of a black man, but apparently that never occurred to her. So this sort of behavior had never come up at the jobs that they had together. The, I mean, EEOC, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. So anyway, she said that he sort of came on to her at some point and word came out, word came out. I heard on the street that Clarence Thomas had rented a porno movie at the local video store called Long Dong Silver. And I don't know that he ever actually did that, but that was the word on the street. Just like black men are very well endowed. It was playing into all the tropes. It was awful. And as I watched, I got sick. My heroes were cads. Ted Kennedy, using those old tropes to sexualize black men, you know, they're black predators. That's basically what he was saying. It was all anyone was talking about. Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas, Anita Hill, Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas. And I walked into the studio to talk to my colleagues uh, for whom I did the news to emote about this terrible display. And one of the morning hosts asked me, do you believe her? And I paused for a nanosecond and I said no. And he was shocked because he knew me to be a fairly liberal individual. I said, she's lying. I said, that was exactly what my thoughts were. And what was worse was the old self-important old money jerks on the Judiciary Committee knew she was lying. And they put her up there anyway. They didn't care. She'd done what they needed her to do. Those fat old bastards couldn't be seen taking down a competent, qualified black man. That was impolitic. But a black woman could. That was my thought at the time, and I was shocked. It wasn't about lifting people up, I thought. It wasn't about helping black people. It was about petty partisan politics. Oh, man. This qualified black man would be collateral damage. That's been decades ago, and I still haven't changed my mind about the incident. And it was a red pill moment for me. For that reference, you'd have to go to eight years later, 1999, in The Matrix. You know the, you know the story. When Neo is given the choice of staying in ignorant bliss about his life in The Matrix by taking the blue pill, or he could take the red pill. And so his eyes could be opened and he could know what he was really up against. But that was a harder pill to take, harder pill to swallow. So he chose the red pill. Do you want to know what it is? The matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work. When you go to church. When you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. 
This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Offering is the truth, nothing more. Follow me. Scout's kind of hokey now, doesn't it? Whew. But that Clarence Thomas hearing was a red pill moment for people like Andrew Breitbart, who wrote a book about it, for people like Keith Thompson, an old aide to Howard Metzenbaum, the senator who helped out Anita Hill when she wanted to remain anonymous and besmirch Clarence Thomas's reputation in the dark. Keith Thompson wrote a book later called Leaving the Left. He quit Metzenbaum's office and uh, decided to do something else with his life. (laughs) He was so disgusted. (laughs) I don't blame him. Clarence Thomas was righteously indignant over this treatment. He came back to the hearing that was reopened and uh, thought it was all over, but it wasn't, of course, and looked straight into the cameras and straight into the faces of those men who tried to destroy his reputation and his dignity. And he told them no to this high-tech lynching. That's right. That's what he called it, a high-tech lynching, a circus. Here's how that went. You'll recognize Joe Biden's voice or not. He's old and addled now. But you can see how he contrived this show trial, the Star Chamber for Thomas, and pretended to be somewhat apologetic. Make no mistake, Joe Biden made this happen. He orchestrated it. He stagecrafted it. And he did it in prime time, giving Anita Hill prime time television to do it. Clarence Thomas got a chance to reply at 9.30 p.m. And here's how that sounded. Committee will please come to order. Judge, it's a tough day and tough night for you, I know. Let me uh, ask, do you have anything you'd like to say before we begin? I understand that uh, your preference is, uh, which is totally and completely understandable, that we go one hour tonight, 30 minutes on each side. Is Am I correct in that? That's right. Do you have anything you'd like to say? Senator, I would like to start by saying unequivocally, uncategorically, that I deny each and every single allegation against me today that suggested in any way that I had conversations of a sexual nature or about pornographic material with Anita Hill, that I ever attempted to date her, that I ever had any personal sexual interest in her, or that I in any way ever harassed her. The second, and I think more important point, I think that this today is a travesty. I think that it is disgusting. I think that this hearing should never occur in America. This is a case in which this sleaze, this dirt, was searched for by staffers of members of this committee, was then leaked to the media, and this committee and this body validated it and displayed it at prime time over our entire nation. How would any member on this committee, any person in this room, or any person in this country would like sleaze said about him or her in this fashion, 
where this dirt dredged up and this gossip and these lies displayed in this manner. How would any person like it? The Supreme Court is not worth it. No job is worth it. I'm not here for that. I'm here for my name, my family, my life, and my integrity. I think something is dreadfully wrong with this country when any person, any person in this free country would be subjected to this. This is not a closed room. There was an FBI investigation. This is not an opportunity to talk about difficult matters privately or in a closed environment. This is a circus. It's a national disgrace. And from my standpoint, as a black American, as far as I'm concerned, it is a high-tech lynching for uppity blacks who in any way deign to think for themselves, to do for themselves, to have different ideas. And it is a message that unless you kowtow to an old order, this is what will happen to you. You will be lynched, destroyed, caricatured, by a committee of the U.S. U.S. Senate rather than hung from a tree. So Clarence Thomas was named to the U.S. Supreme Court, as he should have. And he got up and defended himself. No one expected him to do that. And he did it. And as he said, no job was worth it. He was doing it for dignity and for his integrity, and for his family. He's a son of a sharecropper, grandson of a man who brought him up, and in a very, very poor family. And how is it that that's not a story that would be venerated by the media and other places, uh, by the U.S. Senate, as a matter of fact, but it wasn't. It was sort of a sideshow, just a, oh, and also, he was conservative. And... He spoke. There were notes in front of him, and he never looked at them. His wife, Ginny, sat at his side, just off a little bit to his his right. And people like to talk about Ginny Thomas. She's a white woman. She's a conservative activist. Now, ask yourself, she's been in conservative circles forever, but ask yourself, why wouldn't you be activated and enthused about going after your political adversaries? after that circus happened to her husband. And so it is now you see the same playbook. Clarence Thomas said it. He laid it out. You had these people who were willing to listen to lies. You exercised your ability with all your friends and the media to leak the story in order to besmirch, to destroy the reputation of a man. And people bought it. And that's exactly what happened in the Russian collusion situation. Here's another story. I'm not saying, listen, both sides play political games. So let's just lay that on the table. But I want you to know something. This happened to Donald Trump. He's a billionaire. He's a man who's been of the left and certainly more conservative now after becoming president and seeing what worked for the country, but he almost couldn't do it. After Hillary Clinton, and we found out in trial testimony in the trial of Michael Sussman, that Hillary Clinton is the one who green-lighted this opposition to research, this disinformation campaign to tie Donald Trump to the Kremlin, to make him a Putin stooge, to fancy a new title for Donald Trump, a Russian secret agent. And Hillary Clinton and her minions, being Michael Sussman and, and Mark Elias, who is the DNC and Hillary Clinton's Hillary for America head attorney, Sussman was a, an underling of his, They went on their merry way. They hired who they needed. They spent millions of dollars to hire these people to make up 
stuff about Donald Trump. Christopher Steele made up the Steele dossier. There, I'm sorry to tell you, if you have clung to this idea that the, the, the dossier was right, that Donald Trump really did watch hookers jump on beds and pee on it, on a bed that was slept in by Barack Obama because he didn't like Barack Obama that much, well, I, I can't help you. If you believe that trap, then I can't help you. But tell I will tell you that there's absolutely no way that happened. If the GRU or the FSB got a hold of Donald Trump with hookers peeing on a bed in the presidential suite at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Moscow, oh, you better believe they'd use it. But they didn't have that because it didn't happen. And you had all kinds of people talking about how, well, you know, that was compromised. Adam Schiff, a congressman who knew it was a hoax, who knew it was a hoax. Eric Swalwell, who actually slept with a Chinese spy, knew it was a hoax. And they still peddled it. And the FBI knew it was a hoax. And the CIA knew it was a hoax. Hillary Clinton's people made it up. They peddled it so that there possibly could be some sort of investigation of it. And it was fake. Fake news, as Hillary Clinton said one time. She's the one who started the fake news situation. Donald Trump stole that from her and used it against the media. And you know what? The media won awards for their transcription of Democrat talking points known as the Russia collusion hoax. They won awards for that. They should be forced to give them back. And I saw that same kind of thing in 1991, watching what had happened to, to Clarence Thomas, and I thought, I believe they're capable of doing that again. It's crazy. And so it is, I tell you from the heart, I think people go to Washington with the best of intentions, but I also think that they think they're so pure, that they're on the side of the angels, that they're on the right side of history, that they are willing to cut corners to jail people, literally jail people, who may have done some things wrong, but not all things wrong, to use a two-tiered system of justice to jail their political enemies. This is not America. This is not the America we were told existed in our history books. This is dystopia. It's insane. It's not the way it should be. And yet, this is where we are. This is why I give people the benefit of the doubt. I mean, I've talked to Antifa John. I know some things that they like to rewrite history and and all of those things. And this is why I talked to Jake Lang. He's been in prison uh, for months and months and months since January 6th. And he's going to be there until January 2023, waiting for his trial. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's wrong. That is unconstitutional. He didn't kill anyone. He saved lives that day. He hurt cops. We have video of him hurting cops. Not as bad as they did in the Antifa riots, BLM riots of 2020, but he hurt cops and that's wrong and you should have to pay for that. Listen to this interview. It's really crappy sound, and I apologize for it, but give it a chance. Let your ears get used to it. Give it a chance. Listen to what he says. Some of it, you're just going to say, oh, that's utter nonsense. In other parts, you're going to be shocked. So enjoy this conversation with Jake Lang, a January 6th protester who's been in prison for more than a year and a half without a trial. I'm a 27-year-old New Yorker um, 
that I found at j6shoot.org, and I've been locked up for 16 months now. That's insane. Yeah. 16 months, and what did you do, Jake? So, basically, I, uh, I stood up for free and fair elections on January 6, 2021, um, to support the Constitution, to support uh, the patriotic movement, to basically keep our, our rights that we've uh, long since established in this country and not just give them away to a tyrannical regime such as Joe Biden's. And, um, you know, I, I did that with my First Amendment to stand there to protest and to have a redress of our grievances. And I was uh, ambushed and assaulted by the Capitol Police that day, and I almost lost my life. And uh, a young woman, Roseanne Boylan, 34-year-old uh, woman from Georgia, did die in my arms. And uh, she paid the ultimate sacrifice for, for liberty in this country, and she should be remembered forever. You know, I just literally found out recently uh, that she had been trampled and not uh, fallen ill from a drug overdose, which is, I think, what the initial story was we got from the Capitol Police. Yeah. What? Where were you? I mean, what, what was happening? Why were you in the tunnel? So... Um, I was in the tunnel for a number of, uh, for about two hours at that point already. Um, the tunnel turned into a squeeze point where the Capitol Police were using their uh, body armor and their ride shields and their, their batons to literally mow people down inside that tunnel. And um, it turned into a position in there where I had to defend myself and defend the lives of all the unarmed Americans that were in that tunnel for hours. Um, and at a certain point, Around 4.20 in the afternoon, um, Roseanne entered the tunnel, and they deployed some kind of, like, noxious gas, like a, a capsule spray or something. It kind of, like, sucks the air, air out of your lungs. And um, her and Philip Anderson, um, a young black man, collapsed inside the tunnel. And there was, like, a, a reverse surge to get out of the tunnel because the police were using this chemical spray and beating people and had, like, this forward, like, coordinated move to push everyone out of the tunnel and it turned into a um, like a reverse stampede and people were climbing over on top of each other there were about two three levels deep of people where they were swimming on top of each other people at the bottom of the dog pile were being crushed Roseanne um, found herself at the bottom of that dog pile and the police from the from my own personal eyewitness and from the um, cam video footage I saw, they were prodding people over on top of each other, basically fully aware that the people at the bottom of this dog pile were at risk of death. And they just kept on pushing and pushing and pummeling people over two, three, four levels deep on top of each other horizontally. Um, and it was so disgusting to see this video footage. And so Roseanne was at the bottom of this dog pile. She, um, she was being crushed and she was also being beaten with a baton by Officer Lyle Morris. And we have that footage on j6truth.org. Um, if you guys want to go and see for yourselves, the audience to actually witness what I'm talking about, mm -hmm. that that footage is on there. And so I'm outside the tunnel at that point, and I see these people in this horrible situation. I start waving my arms. I kind of like trying to land an airplane, like at a big stop motion, screaming at the cops, please stop, please stop. There's people at the bottom of the dog pound. They're dying. People are dying. Like, stop pushing people over the top. And the cops are just ruthlessly uh, not aware or not caring. They were totally aware, but not not aware of me trying to get them to stop. They didn't, they were just had bloodlust in their eyes and they were just trying to hurt people and, and, and murder people. And um, so I get in there and I'm pulling at Roseanne, trying to dislodge her from the bottom of this dog pile because I know that she's in a bad way. She's going to die. I see it. Um, her face is facing towards the, the exit to the, um, the tunnel. And uh, it's, it's hard for me to talk about this sometimes, but it, sure. her face, I can still see it. Like it's yesterday. And she went from like this like deep purple to like this stark white. Like she had no blood, no oxygen left in her. And I'm pulling at her, yanking at her for like two, three minutes. And it's just no use. There's too many people piled on top of her. I'm ripping people off of her. And every time I take somebody off of her, the Capitol Police push another person on top of her. And it was just this disgusting situation. And they were pepper spraying me and her all the while. Um, and so I eventually, I knew that she passed away. And I couldn't save her. But there were other people that were nearby her that were um, savable. 
And so I kind of like hopped over the railing that was there. And I saw Philip Anderson, this young black man with his tongue hanging out the side of his head. And uh, he's unconscious. And he was about to meet the same fate as her. Um, and so he was in a little bit better position for me to grab him. And I got him, kind of got him in like a bear hug and um, like brought him up onto me. And I was able to like, you know, kind of pull him out of there and drag him down the steps and uh, bring him to the volunteer medics. And they resuscitated him, and he, you um, know, he's living now today, and he credits me. He did a court sworn affidavit um, saying that I saved his life, and, and the Capitol Police tried to murder him, and if it wasn't for me, he'd be dead. Okay, so uh, what were you all doing in the tunnel? Did the police force you into the tunnel? Did you try to get into the tunnel in so that you could get into the Capitol to overthrow the government or whatever they said that you were attempting to, you were attempting to do? Um, what were you doing there? So, um, the tunnel, you know, was, we, we originally entered it at 2.40. I was in there, like, journalistically videotaping. I have, uh, you know, social media accounts where I'm constantly, you know, talking about libertarian and conservative issues and stuff. So, I was in there just videotaping and using my First Amendment right to protest the government. And, you know, that's where the crowd was going. So, that's where we, that, that, you know, we were on the West Terrace, um, kind of like platform there and so everyone started going to the tunnel so I went into the tunnel with everyone to get good footage and to make my voice heard and uh, once we got in that tunnel basically the police were in a line um, not allowing us to go any further into the tunnel about probably about 20 feet into the entrance so more people were surging in from the back and the police were holding their line in the front so basically it created a squeeze like a they cattled you where they cattled us horribly and I'm at the very front, and we're unarmed, and we're non-combative, and the police have their full clad, you know, elbow, wrist, elbow, knee, chest, and helmet, and, and eye visors, and everything, they are completely protected, um, and so they start pulling out their batons and beating us, and so I can actually have footage of this on my website, um, on j6truth.org, and so we're unarmed, and they're just they're basically, we can't leave, and we can't go any further, and so people are getting beaten up, like, horribly, like, pretty bad. I mean, there's death blows. Like, I've seen a cop with two hands above his head um, lurch down on the top of this old man's head. He had gray hair with his back turned to the police um, with his metal baton on the top of this guy's head, and he started bleeding everywhere. And, um, you know, this was five, ten minutes after we entered the tunnel, and all of a sudden it turns into, like, a fight or flight, like, you know, life or death situation where you have to either defend yourself or defend the people around you or else people are going to start dying. So I put my phone away and I started to defend myself and defend the people around me from police brutality. And basically the tunnel was like that for hours at a time. And I just couldn't force myself to to abandon these people that were in me. The people were dying. Could you have abandoned... Wait, could you have abandoned them if you'd chosen? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, a couple times I left the tunnel and got my eyes washed out for, um, I was being pepper sprayed at Point Blank Range, and, um, yeah, I mean, it's possible that I could have, you know, been a coward and, and let people die, but I'm, I'm not, I wasn't raised like that. If there's unarmed American citizens being beaten to death, I don't care by whom, I'm going to stand there and defend them and, and defend these, you know, these women and uh, elderly people inside that tunnel. I personally got many of the women and elderly people out of that tunnel and more of them kept on searching in, not knowing that they were going to meet <laughs> almost a certain death in there. So people who were in the tunnel could have gotten out? Uh, well, no, I mean, not originally. At different, basically, after a while, after you're getting beaten up and, and, um, and pepper sprayed for so long, people kind of like the people in the middle of the tunnel were like switching places with the people in the very front and the people at the, at the entrance of the tunnel were surging into the tunnel so you couldn't it was like this I don't know kind of kettle where there were so many people coming into the tunnel and the people in the very front were being beaten by the police that we were like kind of bringing like fresh people to stand there and get beaten by the police and, and defend <laughs> and defend ourselves and eventually Sometimes you got pushed out of the tunnel to the very, um, to the exit, but it was not really where you can leave on your own fruition if you wanted to. It was more like if you've ever been in a really large concert and you, people start searching towards the front and 
and you're like chest to chest, like very tightly packed, and you kind of at the whim of the crowd movement. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, like people get killed in those situations. Exactly. How you try to avoid those situations. You don't try to create them. I understand what police do when they kettle people and they sort of try to get them into a pen of sorts uh, to yeah, well, stop exactly them from like moving that. forward. It was, you know, what, what astonishes me is that one side of the Capitol, the police are fist bumping people, taking selfies, high-fiving, you know, letting them into the Capitol. And the other side, they create this deadly kettle situation that, there's a total disregard for human life. And before the assaults started, the alleged assaults started happening between the protesters and the police inside that tunnel, there was this panic squeeze where everyone started losing air because we were being, you know, absolutely squished. And I'm screaming in there on my video, they're squishing us to death. The police are squishing us to death. Help us, help us. Please back up, police officers. Please back up. They refused to back up. And they created this, you know, this squishing, deathly environment. And they eventually people freaked out. And on top of that, being pepper sprayed and hit with batons, eventually, you know, you have to start defending yourself or else you're going to die. Right. And people do have a, they have a right to defend themselves even against a police officer. Uh, and that exists. It's a right. Uh, but I think you're, you have a duty to retreat if you can. So here you are. Tell us where in the Capitol this was. Uh, you said it was at the West End. Is that, I'm trying to imagine where this is. Is this a place that well, we've seen? The president, the president does his inauguration. Um, like he comes out of that little tunnel and he comes out onto that main platform there that's like above the West um, Side Lawn. So that's like, um, you know, pretty famous part of the Capitol where he does the inauguration speech and where you know, the, the, the poet laureate or whatever does the, the uh -huh. poetry for the inauguration. It's right there. This is and the place that, that this is the place depicted in all of the horrible photos that we see of people hanging off the scaffolding and all of that on January 6th, yeah. correct? Yeah. So well, I wouldn't call them horrible. I would call them, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a patriots exercising this first amendment right. And, uh, you know, they had every right to be there to exercise that right and to stand up against the tyrannical overthrow of our government via a stolen election. And now you're in prison. And now I'm in prison, yeah. For uh, saving two men's lives that day, for trying to help a woman that died in my arms. And, you know, and there's no injuries. Mind you, my, my um, indictments and stuff, they don't name any injured parties. I mean, you have people in, I mean, you're, I'm from New York. And we have people in New York City um, out, you know, rap sheet 20, I have no prior arrests or, or, or criminal history as well. We have people with rap sheets, 20, 30 prior arrests, all kinds of violent criminal history. They get out of the shootout with police and then they're out on bail the next day. Meanwhile, I've been in solitary confinement for 16 months. Where are you currently speaking to me on the phone? I'm in Alexandria, Virginia, uh, detention center in an administrative segregation unit, which is a fancy word for solitary confinement, doing 22 hours a day in a cell alone with um, no chair, no bench. The light stays on 24 hours. Um, there is no uh, social uh, contact for me. I don't get to hang out with anybody. I don't get any human interaction. I don't get any visitation here. No books, um, no gym time. They refuse me medical attention. Uh, no law library access. So, yeah, that's where I'm at. I'm in a concentration camp sponsored by the United States federal government. It's almost better in Gitmo. In fact, the food's better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they have ice cream sundaes in Gitmo. They have soccer games at Gitmo. Yeah, I don't get to see the sun. I haven't been outside in a couple months. How do you stay sane? God. God is my rock. He's my deliverer. The, the spirit of the, of the Most High God stays on me. I pray all day. I write. I worship. And, uh, you know, I have uh, the, the redemption of, of Jesus Christ. He's already won the battle for me. So I already know how this whole time fight's going to end. Good's going to uh, outperform evil a uh, hundredfold, and, and we're going to win this thing. So, so when do you go to court? I, I, my trial is not scheduled until January 2023. So Jeez. I'll be two years in, uh, in uh, illegal detainment. 
uh, before I even get to see my day in court. Charges? Um, there's 13 charges against me. They range from um, six assault with a deadly weapon on police officer to other assault charges on uh, police officers. Um, uh, aiding and abetting, uh, disrupting Congress, um, all kinds of Trump uh, disorderly conduct, picketing at the Capitol, you know, uh, illegal picketing. Um, but there's 12 felonies, and uh, I'm facing, uh, I mean, very serious time. Yeah. If, uh, if I were to uh, lose trial, depending on what the judge wants to do, I mean, I could be spending my life in prison. You've already spent almost two years in prison for... Uh, charges that anyone else would be released on recognizance until trial is set. Uh, why are you oh, still yeah. there? Well, the, the Department of Justice and the FBI um, have become a political branch of the, the Democratic Party. They have become weaponized against conservatives. They want to use the situation of January 6th to signal to the American people if you ever exercise your rights, if you ever stand against tyranny, if you ever try to make sure that a free and fair election happens and that uh, socialists <laughs> deprive the, uh, uh, I mean, whatever Joe Biden is, I mean, he's, he's a tyrant. But if you ever stand against that, then we will throw you in jail, we'll defame you across America, we'll call you domestic terrorists, white supremacists. They're trying to scare the American people by mistreating us and by um, over-sentencing us, by not letting us out, by keeping us in solitary confinement, so that if anybody ever tries again to stand against tyranny, they know that the federal government is uh, is going to destroy them, and so that's what they're, they're signaling to the American people. This is what happens if you use your exercise your constitutional rights. As you await trial for January twenty twenty three, are you receiving any medical care at all, any kind? No, no, they they're actually refusing me right to see a physician or a medical doctor. Only nurses come in and take my blood pressure and stuff, and you know I have. Uh, Different things I'm trying, you know, stomach problems because of the food they're giving me is it's 100% soy based, and uh, my stomach's not agreeing with that. I'm trying to get off this soy diet, and I'm on a kosher diet, but it's all soy. And uh, I'm a young Jewish American, and uh, I saved the life of an unarmed black man on the steps of our capital from police brutality. And uh, you'll never hear that narrative in mainstream media. You know, uh, it's ridiculous. Going back to the tunnel and the charges against you. Assault with a deadly weapon. What was your weapon, Jake? They're claiming that um, the allegations against me is a boot. My boot is a deadly weapon, apparently. Um, a riot shield that I used to defend countless lives. Um, and uh, they're alleging that I had a baseball bat at a certain point. Um, but apparently there's no injury, so, you know, I don't understand what these, uh, you know, it's, it seems like it was like a skirmish or a scuffle to me. It wasn't, you know, nobody's walking around disfigured for the rest of their life from any of my actions or even bruised. So, I mean, I don't understand how you could want to take away a man's life, like, you know, put me in jail for 10, 20 years, when there's no injuries. I mean, come on, you know. How do you know? Real disorderly, disorderly conduct, because there's nothing on my indictment that, Clarifies that uh -huh. anybody injured. If you're, if you have injuries, it says you know um, that you've injured people on your indictment, and that's a, a more serious charge. But um, you know, disorderly conduct. If, if, if I was a BLM or Antifa, and I was at in the 2020 um, riot across you know Seattle or New York or Chicago or wherever, and the same thing happened, which happened at the Capitol, I would have a disorderly conduct um, court. Appearance, I get off with a misdemeanor charge or, or a fine, and that would be it because I'm a leftist. And that's, you know, all of the prosecutors are not going to prosecute me, and the judges are going to just do whatever the prosecutor says. And that would be my reality if I was a BLM or Antifa rider. But because I'm a patriot and uh, I stood for our constitutional liberties, they want to destroy me. What about your legal team? Tell me about your lawyers. Are you happy with the people who are representing you? Are they doing it pro bono? Are they federal defenders? And tell me about that. Um, my legal defense is run by Stephen Metcalf out of New York City. He's a longtime personal friend of mine. He's a diligent, um, amazing patriot, and he's really stuck by my side from the very beginning of this thing. And um, 
our legal team actually brought in Joe McBride as well too, who's been an amazing like standout supporter of the Patriots, and he's taken on a bunch of cases, including this woman Victoria White. Um, she, there's video of her on, on J6Street.org too. She was in the tunnel. She was unarmed. She's a small woman, um, and she was brutally being punched in the face on camera by the cops like 20, 30 times, hit with batons, and she's doing nothing, not fighting back, doing nothing, and and uh, so Joe McBride's representing her, and uh, he's part of the you know the New York City legal team that I brought into this whole entire thing, and they've actually turned out Joe and Steve have turned out to be the two like strongest. Um, lawyers for all Jan Sixers and doing interviews and standing up on our behalf and filing um, a lot of different motions to dismiss. And um, So I'm really happy with my legal team. We have some really um, next level arguments that we're going to be posing to the court coming soon as far as jurisdiction of the federal government, if they even have the jurisdiction that they claim to have over state citizens such as myself. And uh, We're going to be making some very interesting uh, motions coming up soon and um, including motion to dismiss right now we have in this fifteen twelve charge which is obstruction of Congress. It's a twenty year charge, um, if found guilty, maximum penalty. It's the largest charge any of us have. And um my judge, uh Carl Nichols, he actually dismissed his charge on one other Jan Sixer, um my buddy uh Garrett Miller. And so he's reviewing my charge my, my motion to dismiss this fifteen twelve charge, which is this coverall um, blanket charge that they've charged hundreds of Jan Sixers with, um, you know, claiming that they're disrupting Congress, uh, an official proceeding it's called, and uh, it's a bogus charge, and, and my judge, God willing, he'll, he'll let me off and, uh, and, and dismiss that charge, and, uh, you know, we're going to be attacking each charge individually like that before trial and trying to get this indictment down to what it's really bare bones of what I actually did or didn't do instead of all these pontificating uh, charges that are just trying to lay on, you know, felony after felony after felony on me. Have they tried to force you into reading anything or expressing a different viewpoint in order to get a more lenient sentence in advance of your uh, trial? I mean, with how outspoken I am, they know my who I am and my character and all my death before dishonor and I'll never take a plea deal from these pirates but I know that if I were to convalesce and to bend the knee and say I resent Trump and all this garbage that they'd let me out on bond because they've done that to a couple other guys who have uh, turned over on their bellies and you know did said oh I regret Jan 6 I regret supporting Trump this is that they let them out on bond um, people with assault charges that are similar to mine. Is there anything you um, do regret about January 6th? Um, not at all. No, I can't say I regret anything about January 6th. I, I think that the founding fathers of our nation would have been shoulder to shoulder with me that day. You know, freedom isn't free, and our country's in a bad way. You know, when Joe Biden says uh, statements like, no amendment is absolute, and uh, if you want to fight the government, you're going to need nukes and, and uh, 16s or whatever, F-36s, you know, he's he's saying that you're slaves. He's saying that we can take your rights whenever you want and you can't fight the government, we'll slaughter you. And uh, that's not how our, our Constitution or our Declaration of Independence is set up. We're never supposed to be, the, the government is supposed to be at the whim of the people and it's supposed to be inherently driven its power from the will of the people. And if the people do not consent to the government, um, which you obviously saw on January 6th, millions of Americans did not consent to the government, and we stood up peacefully without weapons and told them our lack of consent that we wanted a redress of our grievances, and they, they slaughtered us. They murdered four unarmed American citizens on, on our own capital grounds. And uh, when you have pirates running the country like we have now, um, and you stand up to, to defend against them, this is what happens again. You're your political prisoner of 16 months in solitary confinement, treated like an animal. And, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, it's okay to be uh, a freedom fighter and an and a, a, a ardent supporter of liberty, and, and you don't get treated like this by tyrants. That's how it goes. And, uh, Ro Roseanne, Ashley, who else was murdered that day?
Um, there's a man, Kevin Greason, there's claiming that he died from a heart attack. Um, there's, uh, there's a lot of ample evidence to uh, show that he may have received a uh, pepper ball through the eye socket, and that could be the cause of his death. Um, there's another man that was pushed off the ledge by a cop that's on j6street.org that uh, is believed to have uh, suffered mortal injuries um, from, from that thing. I mean, he dropped like 30 feet onto his chest. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a, this was like a Boston massacre. This was January 6th massacre of American citizens uh, unarmed, peacefully protesting. What would you have done if you'd gotten inside? Um, continue to peacefully protest and, and hold my ground as an American and, and demand uh, a redress of my grievances. What would that look like? Right to do. Hold an American flag and hugging people in there and, and uh, maybe sitting down and, and, and taking a load off and, and uh, continuing to chant, you know, America is never going to be a socialist country, you know, we, the Constitution will be upheld. I mean, all the things I was saying that day. And just hang out and uh, make sure that our, our redresses, our, our grievances are redressed. I mean, that's what the whole entire point behind the First Amendment is, that there's supposed to be a proper redress of your grievances. You're not supposed to just skip over a million people outside demanding a recount for the election. They're not just supposed to just skip over your your, your, your thoughts. Yeah, they're not, not important. They're not citizens. You know, they're supposed to redress our grievances and actually do a recount and, and, and listen to our demands. Any, no regrets from that day. Uh, would you have done anything differently, however? I mean, I would have, uh, I would have tried to save Roseanne's life in a, in a stronger manner. Like, I've been working out every day doing thousands of push-ups and getting very strong uh, because I'm never going to let a, a woman die in my arms again who, who quite possibly could have been saved by me if I was a little stronger. Um, to pull her out. She was, you know, um, lodged in there pretty well, but I, I think that in my current physical shape, I could have saved her life if, if I um, was a little stronger, but I also was fighting for defending my life for two hours prior to that, and, uh, you know, I was I was exhausted. My arms were numb already. And to pick up Philip Anderson, he's a six foot, some odd, 200 and some odd pound man, and my arms were numb when I was picking him up and carrying him out of there, but, um, yeah, I would, I would be stronger to, to save Roseanne. God bless her soul. What a day. How long were you in there? Yeah. I was in the tunnel from 2.30 to about 5 um, when they shot me with a rubber bullet. And broke you have foot. one minute left. That's right. We have they, one minute left. Shoot me. Yeah. They shot you with yeah. a rubber bullet, and what happened after that? I was uh, I was incapacitated. I couldn't walk, and uh, right after that, uh, they pretty much five minutes later, they launched like 20, 30 canisters of tear gas, and they cleared out that that area. And they could have done that from probably the very beginning, but I don't know. Maybe the uh, Nancy Pelosi told them to make it, you know, let it get really crazy and uh, for photo optics, and then clear us out. You know, she, the Capitol Police are her personal uh, little uh, stormtrooper army. Have you have you seen all? We only have a few seconds left. Have you seen all the video from that day from the police body cams? I have, and it is so disgusting the way they treated unarmed American citizens. And I really want to tell your audience: go to j6truth.org. We have a new documentary launching uh, this week, forty-five minutes, and never before seen footage of the Capitol. You guys, thank you for the way. Thank you for this interview. Thank you, Jake. Well, that was interesting. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Adult in the Room podcast. To keep the programs you like to listen to, please rate this podcast with a fantastic five stars on your Apple podcast app every time you listen. And give me a great review. Plus, of course, subscribe to the podcast. It makes a difference with the big tech algorithm and the big tech oligarchs. And it makes us easier to find. Please get in touch with me on all the big tech stuff. Yeah, we're still there. Using the names Victoria Taft or the Adult in the Room podcast on MeWe, Parlor, Minds, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to 1A Cast for imaging, editing, and production. The fantastic song is Gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for Antifa versus Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by Raps by RC. The Adult in the Room podcast is also a production of Flamingo Road Studios. Remember, 
Head up, heart out, and strive to be the adult in the room. Till next time, Mischief Managed.